Amen. What a great, great blessing it is to the people of God. Matthew chapter 3, if you'll open your copy of the scripture to that passage, uh, Matthew chapter 3, 12 verses there that we will examine this morning for our spiritual edification, strengthening in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Let me read these verses in our hearing. Um, I want to set them in our thinking that as we work our way through them, um, these truths will be on our mind and help us to connect the truths with what will be exposited here more readily, I trust. Beginning at verse 1. Now in those days, John uh, the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one who ref- referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, You, that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Um, I've chosen as a subject you can already see if you've got um, an outline for the sermon and it's titled, Repent or Else. Repent or Else. For 400 years, the nation of Israel did not hear the voice of a prophet of God. For four centuries, those four centuries have been called silent years. That changed, however, with the appearance of John the Baptist. He came on the scene, and in his gospel, John wrote this in chapter 1, verse 6, that he was, quote, a man sent from God. As such, he was a forerunner and herald of Messiah to the people of Israel. He called Israel to make ready the way of the Lord. Make ready meant spiritual preparation. And that preparation included repentance from sin. And that repentance from sin is the heading for the first point in this message, the message of repentance. Those days, in verse 1, John's ministry commenced in those days. A reference to the 30 years that elapsed between chapter 1 and chapter 2. John was called, as you see in the text, the Baptist. 
He was the baptizer because of the prominence of baptism in his ministry. But preaching, which you see there in verse 1, was the prelude to the baptism and Preaching was an essential part of his ministry, the proclamation, the heralding of the word of God to the people of Israel, indispensable to what they needed to know and hear. Preaching, the word in the original text means to herald. Heralds in ancient times announced the coming of a noble person or royalty. John's announcement was of the coming of the Messiah, and his kingdom. John's announcement wasn't made, you'll notice, in the capital city of Jerusalem. But he was preaching, notice in verse 1, in the wilderness of Judea. He was away from the distractions of the city of Jerusalem. He was away from the corruption of the corrupt religion and the religious leaders who were corrupt and hypocritical. In addition to that, And more importantly, his venue, as we see, was in the wilderness. He was there because that was prophesied it would be there. He was a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, you need to understand John's message was not one that he invented. It was a God-given message. And it focused on Israel's spiritual condition. That's why he says in verse 2, repent. Their estrangement from the Lord was the focal point of his proclamation. They were estranged from the Lord because of their sin. And their remedy for their estrangement included repentance. That's why it says, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is our message, too. It's the message we have to deliver to sinners. People need to hear and be made aware of the divine assessment of their lives. They need to be made cognizant of their spiritual plight in his eyes. They need to know their condition before the all-seeing, almighty, totally holy God. They need to know that they are in the wrong with respect to him. That they are not okay in their condition. Many times people say, come just as you are. I don't know altogether what they mean, but I do know this. You can't come just as you are. You've got to come with a repentant heart. Repentance is indispensable. People need to know that they are under his wrath and that he alone can deliver them. That is our message to them. It begins with repentance. And repentance is emphasized by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. When he inaugurated his public ministry, as as shown in chapter 4, verse 17, it says, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was the only one who proclaimed repentance. The apostles following their master, their Lord, called sinners to repentance. In fact, the first Christian sermon was preached by the apostle Peter. And he stood up and he said to the people on the day of Pentecost, repent. And the question may be asked, and it needs to be, 
what does repentance mean? Some have suggested or believe that repentance connotes simply a change of one's mind. Certainly that is included. But that's not enough. Others have defined repentance as being sorry for one's sins. Sometimes people are sorry for their sins. They're sorry or they're grieved because they got caught. Sorrow and grief over one's offense against God is appropriate when it is recognizing I've sinned against a holy God. But that is not enough. On one occasion, a group of children were asked about repentance. One said that it means being sorry for your sins. But a little girl defined it better, saying, it's being sorry enough to quit. I like her definition. Lou, Lo, and Nida, in their Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, write that repentance denotes to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. Whole life is changed. Thought and attitude towards sin and righteousness. D.A. Carson states that it is, quote, a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turning around. End of quote. The word is not used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, but the illustration of repentance is clear because when the Thessalonians heard the gospel, they indeed turned around. They repented. They abandoned their idolatry and they served the living and true God. Now you need to understand that repentance is not a standalone action on part of the repenting one. Often in scripture, repentance and conversion, or belief in the gospel, are linked. They go one hand in hand. In fact, in the gospel of Mark, Jesus is preaching. And in Mark 1.15, it says, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance, turn around, turn away from your sin and believe the gospel. The two are linked. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, we see this linkage there as well. Acts chapter 20, verse 21. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the Ephesians, the Ephesian elders, it's a farewell address to them. And he says in verse 21 of Acts 20, and solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see the linkage there? It's inescapable. 
When there's genuine repentance from God's perspective, there is a commitment to faith in Christ. Now you need to know another thing about repentance. Repentance from sin is not a human work any more than faith is. Men cannot gin up repentance. They have no ability to engender it. They can't say, I'm just going to get up and repent. No. Repentance is a gift from God. Anybody who has repented and believed the gospel has done so because of the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. Granting them the gifts of faith and repentance. In Acts chapter 5, to support my point, verse 31, we see it here. He is the one to whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince or leader and a savior. To grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Notice the word grant, signifying it's a gift. It comes from God. It's an act of grace of God toward sinners. That's how it occurs. It's that kind of thing. So, well, he commands, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, how does that happen? Whatever God commands, he supplies the ability to do. That's what he does. Now, in chapter 2 of Matthew 3, where we are, after saying repent, John offers a motive, a motive for the repentance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This kingdom of heaven, and here let me explain, because in the New Testament there are a number of ways the kingdom is manifested, but we're not going to focus on all those other ones. We'll just look at the one, the, the spiritual kingdom, the spiritual rule of God, his sovereign right over men to bless them with salvation are to confer judgment. Here, the spiritual rule of God over all those who belong to him. It's the idea. That kingdom. That kingdom does not have a geographic location. That kingdom is a spiritual one. It cannot be seen. That kingdom, people enter into it by the new birth. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If Jesus says truly once, that's enough. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom. See, that word see is the same as saying enter as it does in John 3, verse 5. Entrance into the kingdom of God is virtue is not merely attending a church. One has to be supernaturally transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. It's the new birth. The impartation of eternal life. That's how one gets into the kingdom. The presence of the spiritual kingdom brings the potential then for blessing or judgment. Depending on the response people to the summons to repent the kingdom God was at hand notice here in our text verse 3 it says 
is at hand. Literally, in the Greek, it has come near. Perfect tense there, meaning it began and it continues and the kingdom is available and one enters when one believes the gospel and one believes the gospel because it's a grace gift from God. And at that moment, one is born again and that one at that point then enters the kingdom. The kingdom's presence is demands action. The gospel demands action. When people hear the gospel, it is demanded of them by God to respond. That's why Jesus, I read it earlier, he said in Mark chapter 1 verse 15, repent and believe the gospel. He didn't say, "Uh, if you'd like, you can repent. If you'd like, you can believe the gospel. No, no, he gave a command, repent and believe the gospel. And it's a demand. And we're like Jesus when we do that. Tell people, you've got to repent and believe the gospel. Which now, if I'm in this standpoint in redemptive history, includes his death, burial, and resurrection. Now in Matthew chapter 3. We're told by the apostle Matthew something about John. He says... This is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Matthew tells us that the herald of, the, of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, uh, this prophet called John, this one who baptized, was also the subject of prophecy. Isaiah 40 verse 3. 700 years before John arrived on the scene in redemptive history, Isaiah prophesied about his coming. That's no surprise. This is God's work. He knows his plans from beginning to end or from the end to the beginning. John knew who he was. John the Baptist, that is. He knew that he was the one about whom Isaiah prophesied. They came to John. They wanted to know, John, are are you the Christ, our Messiah? Are you the coming one? Uh, They wanted to know. He said, no, 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 guys. I'm not the Messiah. He said in John 1, verses 22 and 23, tells him who he is. And he says, these are John's words. I am a voice crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. You knew who he was. That word crying, we read in our text, and John repeated when he was inquired about by those religious leaders who came to him, that word crying means shouting. means pleading with people to repent. Why would he do that? Because it's so important. Make ready the way of the Lord. Now, this way of the Lord is just another way of saying turning from sin to righteousness. Another way of saying repentance. The words make his path straight are metaphorical. You see, this is the deal. Making the path straight when a nobleman or a royalty was visiting some particular place they cleared the road. They're like civil engineers. They're building bridges and cleared the road, raised them up the valley and lowered the mountains, all that sort of thing, making the path straight. 
no obstacles in the nobleman or the royalty's way. Here's metaphorical. Here is talking about clearing the way, clearing away sin that obstructs the reception of the Lord. That's what repentance does. It clears away sin from the heart. Moves it out of the way. So that one can receive him. That's what he is saying. If you're a Christian, that's what you did. By, by the grace of God. It's what happened to you. And that's what John was calling Israel to. John was out in the wilderness. Now he, his, his attire was modeled on the prophet Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 1. Nobody can make the connection because the Jews knew their history. They knew the Old Testament. They knew, oh, that's like Elijah. In fact, uh, he was Elijah who was to come. Spirit and the power of Elijah. As Malachi tells us. And John was out there. This prophet who also ate locusts. And by the way, they still eat locusts in that part of the country, in the part of the world today. So John's attire and his diet were, in fact, a rebuke to the self-indulgent religious leaders who lived in Israel. He was utterly unlike the phonies. And he came, he came and he baptized in the River Jordan, verse 5. With that whole thing, the baptism of Jews was authorized from heaven. God said, do it like this. Now, baptize, let me just give you an understanding of what it means, baptize. That word, bapto, baptizo, the Greek term means to dip under. It means to immerse. So what John was doing, he was immersing in the river. Now, I'll tell you what's stunning about this. Verse 6, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan. People from all around Judea and the district around Jordan. These were Jews. And this is stunning. Because baptism was a rite that was used for Gentiles. Gentiles who were converts to Judaism, proselytes, if they wanted to become a Jew, the Jewish religion become a part of it, they had to be baptized. They were saying, I'm an outsider and I want to be a part of the people of God. But these are Jews, not Gentiles being baptized. This was that baptism for them authorized by God. So what God was telling them, you guys are on the outside. You need to be baptized. You need to express your admission, your desire for admission, or your, admit that you're on the outside, you're outsiders. Outsiders with respect to the kingdom of heaven. They acknowledged they were sinful. That's why they confessed their sins. So this is a stunning thing. They were no better than Gentiles. They had to acknowledge their sin. They had to forsake their sin and come into the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me, let me hasten to add, let, let you know, understand, baptism was a symbol 
of their confession of sin. It did not confer any saving merit on them any more than water baptism, Christian baptism does for Christians, right? It was a symbol for them as is a symbol for us. So John, his message was one of repentance. Jews, you got to repent. Turn around. The next point uh, in verses 7 through 10, the necessity of true repentance. <laughs> the necessity of true repentance. You, you, you don't, you don't want to fake repentance. It's better be real. John's baptizing one day and here come some Pharisees and Sadducees. They've made the trek from Jerusalem. They're out there. They're going to come, and it says they're coming to be baptized. John (laughs) wasn't complimentary. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Can you imagine a pastor saying that to some folks showing up at church one Sunday? They said, why, you rascal. What John called them uh, was offspring of snakes, a brood offspring, vipers, snakes that characterized them. Vipers were small, poisonous snakes. They were very dangerous. When they were lying on, no doubt, John saw many of them on the desert floor. Lying on the desert floor, still, they looked like a branch. And people would go and pick one up, and whoops, it ain't a branch. It's a viper, and they'd be bitten. And their bite could be fatal. You may remember in Acts chapter 28, Paul had been shipwrecked with his others on the island of Malta. There's a fire that made one to warm up the rain and all of that, and a viper latched onto Paul's hand. And the people of Malta thought, oh, this guy's a murderer. He's going to die, sure enough. He didn't. God preserved him. But generally, usually, vipers, their bite was fatal. They were vipers, these religious leaders. They were dangerous because of their hypocrisy. They appeared to be what they were not. Like the viper appeared to be a branch. It was not a branch, but it was a poisonous snake. These people were dangerous spiritually. In fact, Jesus condemned them. He condemned them for their spiritual danger they posed to others. In his famous exploration of those Religious leaders, scribes, and Pharisees. Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. Jesus said this. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. 
That's why they were so dangerous. Keeping people out of the kingdom of heaven. Religious hypocrites. Phonies. Jesus called them such. Now, we see something else here. John said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's already called them vipers. And so in keeping with his statement about that, John uh, says what I just read. You see, vipers would scatter from a brush fire. They would flee the flames. What John implies is that the Pharisees and Sadducees were expecting John's baptism to protect them from divine wrath. Uh, they were wanting a kind of um, uh, as my Savior. Their lives don't change. There's no repentance. They just want life insurance, a fire insurance. They want to be kept out of the flames, but they're not interested in following Christ as Lord. And they live their own the way they want to. They think because they made an intellectual commitment, a mental assent to the gospel, they're okay. That's what John was saying to them. These religious leaders were not truly repentant. They thought they were righteous. They didn't need to repent. (laughs) All they like to do is give a, a show. Remember Jesus talked about them? Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 through 6. They gave their alms for a show. They prayed for a show. Everything they did was to be seen by men. Phony repentance does not preserve one from damnation. People, uh, people like to buy knockoffs, don't they? <laughs> Counterfeit stuff because it's cheap. It, it looks like the real deal. I'm going to tell you something. You don't want to knock off faith. You want the real deal. Insincerity, superficial profession of faith, devoid of genuine repentance does not protect a person from the wrath of God to come. And God knows the counterfeit from the real thing. You can't fool him. And God's prophet, John the Baptist, said, "Uh uh-uh. You guys aren't for real. And that's why it says in verse 8, Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In keeping with equal weight or worth appropriate to true repentance. It will be seen in actions and attitude. In fact, the parallel passage in Luke chapter 3 illustrates it for us. Because they wonder, well, what do we do? What do we do in this parallel passage in Luke chapter 3? Let me just show it to you. And you can see... What happens? And what shall we do? Verse 10. Because John had posed that question and Mark Matthew didn't elaborate further. But in Luke chapter 3 verse 10. And the crowds were questioning him saying, then what shall we do? And here's his answer beginning in verse 11. And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. 
And some tax collectors, wow, them, also came to be baptized. And they said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Because you know, they collected more and they're patting their pockets. Repentance means you change how you treated people. You see, real repentance means you have a different attitude and different actions toward your fellow man. Some soldiers came, questioning him, saying, what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. So these three groups, he allowed outlined for them what they should do. The last one, an attitude of contentment. You see, <laughs> repentance means behavioral and attitudinal change. That's fruit. It's fruit. Well, anticipating back in Matthew, anticipating their thinking, in verse 9, John says, And do not suppose you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. I mean, we're descendants of Abraham. We're okay. Physical descent from Abraham does not secure salvation. Being a, uh, an ethnic Jew is, didn't mean salvation. In fact, you'll recall the story of the rich man. In Luke chapter 16, remember him? He was a Jew. And he ended up in Hades, a place of torment. And John goes on to say, For I say to you, from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. So what on earth is he talking about? Gentiles were considered to be spiritually lifeless and helpless. Dead stones. Hopeless people. As far as the relationship with God was concerned. But wonderfully, wonderfully, God did raise up stones. Because God saves Gentiles. <laughs> and many of them will be in the kingdom. And there will be many Jews who will be excluded. In Matthew 11. 8 rather. Chapter 8 verses 11 and 12 tells us this. Galatians chapter 3 says this, It is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Race, our Jewishness, avails nothing with regard to salvation. John 1.13, not of blood. Racial or ethnic heritage does not get a person into heaven, does not save a person. To be a child of God requires repentance and faith. By an individual, not by descent. Today, people think family members' faith might are going to help them get in. You know, my grandma. Oh, she is a praying woman. So, that's your grandma. There's an old saying. You've heard it. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. 
So I tell anybody, if you have a religious heritage, that's good. If you had faithful father and mother, they knew Jesus Christ, that's wonderful. Praise God for that. But what about you? Your parents' faith won't get you in. May I play with this a little bit? Remember the sons of Sceva? They were trying to exorcise a demon. And they said, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. And they said to the exorcist would be, but who are you? I I can see it now. Somebody said, oh, Lord. I I I should be in. He said, well, I knew your mama. I knew your daddy. But who are you? One must come oneself. Now, I'll tell you something. Verse 10. The imminency of this judgment. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Already. The word already is emphatic. It's there. The axe is there. Judgment is imminent. That's why I tell people, don't fool around. Don't play. Because judgment is imminent. And you don't know when that tree will be cut down. He's not talking about a literal tree. He's talking about people. Judgment of fall. If people refuse to repent when they have the opportunity, when they refuse Christ when they have the opportunity, they don't know that the very next moment they're done. You notice the language here continues. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit that results from repentance, that's the idea, we know that from our context, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, let me let you know here the fire, that fire is frequently a symbol of judgment in the Bible. Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, Genesis chapter 19, 24, brimstone and fire from heaven fell on those two cities and the others too because of their sinfulness. Our Lord himself uses uh, fire in his words in Matthew 13, verse 30 and verse 40 and verse 42 of Matthew 13, fire. Hebrews 10.26 speaks of fire. Hebrews 12.29 says our God is a consuming fire. Fire, divine judgment. Will come. This is why I say repent or else. (laughs) Makes sense now, doesn't it? Or else this is what you get. Serious, serious. So we have the message of repentance, the necessity of true repentance. Finally, final point, the separation of the repentant and non-repentant. See that in verses 11 and 12. John compares himself to a Messiah. The ones coming after him is how he expresses it in this text. He says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And I'm not fit to remove his sandal. He says, he's mightier than I am, and I am not even fit to do it. The lowest deed of a slave. That's how John saw him. He was humble. And Jesus' mightiness 
comes because, notice, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. These are supernatural acts. No mere human being can do that. He's going to baptize them with the Holy Spirit. Now, you need to understand something here, divine timeline. John did not know about the church. He didn't know that was coming. It was a compressed thing. John actually was the last of the Old Testament prophets. I know he appears in the New Testament, but it's the last Old Testament, Old Covenant prophets. The New Covenant being inaugurated by Jesus by his death. Remember that? So John is an Old Testament prophet. He did not know there's this interim between uh, the first and second comings of Christ, the church age. You need to understand that so that it helps you understand uh, what's being said here. It says he'll baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. The Holy Spirit being baptized with him, that is believers. The transformation that comes to us in salvation inwardly changed, whereas water that's outward. The Holy Spirit, that's inward. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13 tells us that we've all been baptized with the Holy Spirit. All Christians have. But then here's this other word, fire. You already know the answer. Again, this is the or else. Repent or else. The fire is judgment. It's what Jesus is going to do. You see how he explains it here in this, in this metaphorical language? His winnowing fork is in his hand. Not a literal winnowing fork. And what the farmers would do, they had this area marked out where they put this dirt down and they put water and they would pat it down so it was very hard. Then they have bricks around it or uh, that way so that they put the grain on it and it kept it from going off. And then take this, this uh, device called a winner, uh, this winnowing sh- shovel or fork, and they would take it, stick it under the wheat, for example, and throw it into the air, and then the shaft, the straw, would be separated from the wheat, and the wheat would fall back down. Then they'd take the wheat, the text says, and gather it into the barn, and the shaft, the worthless stuff, would be burned up. Notice it says, unquenchable fire. And he says, Jesus is going to do this. Now, that messes up people's ideas about Jesus, doesn't it? Because they have these ideas. Oh, he's just a little lowly Jesus. Meek and mild. He's just kind of, kind of wimpish. Kind of, it's not what Jesus is like. Look at what he is like in Scripture. He's serious about evil. And he will deal out justice, judgment, Comes down. Let me show you one other place. Matthew 13. Jesus tells the parable of the wheat and tares. 13.24 of Matthew. During this time period, they grow together. Wheat and tares. Some of the servants in the parable say, oh, can we go separate? Jesus said, no, 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 no. Don't do that. You'll mess up because you don't know. Not your place. I'll take care of the tares. (laughs) He says in verse 30, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles 
to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. The wheat represent believers. Tares represent the unbelievers. Those who even perhaps mingled with believers in a church. They never repented. Never turned away from their wickedness. On the outside they look like the wheat. Because the wheat and tares do look a lot alike. That's why you can't tell them apart to rip out the tares because you could stake a tear for wheat. But when judgment comes, when Jesus returns, the final separation will occur. Is not repentance important? I'll say it is. Israel needs to be ready. Messiah is coming. And they need to repent. Confess their sins. And turn to him. That's what they needed to do. And that remains. People for what. What people need to do. If they've not come to the savior. Already. Let us bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the truth here, the imperative of repentance. Nothing more important than this for a soul to turn from one's rebellion against you and turn to the Savior, the remedy for sin. Thank you for your graciousness in saving sinners, sinners such as us in this room. Thank you for your your kindness, the kindness that appeared in the person of Christ. I pray for anybody in this room right now who has not come to faith in him, has not repented of their sin. Grant that they'll do so. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. We have here...